Welcome. I'm Candace DeMatteis, Vice President of Policy and Advocacy for the Partnership to Fight Infectious Disease, and I'm happy to welcome you to our podcast series, Infectious Conversations. As we work to engage broad audiences on all things superbugs and antimicrobial resistance, we're convening discussions among healthcare professionals, policy experts, patients, and others to get a grip on how to squash superbugs. Our goal is to help underscore the threat AMR poses to all of us, and by AMR, I mean antimicrobial resistance, and the need to address it now. As we're experiencing during the pandemic, the viruses, bacteria, and other microscopic pathogens can have a profound impact on all of our lives. There are many lessons that we can learn from the COVID-19 pandemic and other healthcare experiences that will change the course toward improving health now and in the future. But it takes first that awareness and then action to get it done. Today, our segment will be a follow-up discussion to a recent report published in The Lancet, Global Burden of Bacterial Antimicrobial Resistance in 2019, a Systematic Analysis. This report was also discussed in depth on Friday, February 4th, 2022, at the Global Research on Antimicrobial Resistance, or GRAM, findings launch. I'm joined today by three panelists who reflect a trifecta of experiences, patient, provider, and policy, to discuss this groundbreaking global report and the path forward to making real progress. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Helen Boucher. She is the Dean Ad Interim and Professor of Medicine at Tufts University School of Medicine and Chief Academic Officer of the Wellforce Health System. An active infectious disease physician, she was previously Chief of the Division of Geographic Medicine and Infectious Diseases at Tufts Medical Center and Director of the Stuart B. Levy Center for Integrated Management of Antimicrobial Resistance. Dr. Boucher is the chair of the National Institutes of Health Antibacterial Resistance Leadership Group, Innovations Working Group, and serves on the executive and steering committees. She's also associate editor of Antimicrobial Resistance and Chemotherapy, editor of the Sanford Guide to Antimicrobial Therapy, and Infectious Diseases Clinics of North America. In 2015, Dr. Boucher was appointed a voting member of the Presidential Advisory Council on Combating Antibiotic-Resistant Bacteria, or PATCARB, and elected treasurer of the Infectious Diseases Society of America. Welcome, Dr. Boucher. Nice to see you, Candace. Thanks for having me. Also with us today is Mary Dwight. She is Senior Vice President and Chief Policy and Advocacy Officer at the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. Mary directs the foundation's public policy agenda and efforts to support people living with cystic fibrosis. She is a catalyst for accelerating efforts to remove barriers to clinical drug development and also leads the strategic development of the foundation's efforts to enable and expand access to cystic fibrosis care. Thank you so much for joining us, Mary. Thanks for having me. And last but certainly not least, Kevin Outerson. He teaches health law and corporate law at Boston University, where he co-directs the health law program. He is also the executive director of Combating Antibiotic-Resistant Bacteria Biopharmaceutical Accelerator, also known as CARBEX. 
a global partnership hosted at Boston University Law that is focused on supporting developers of promising new antibiotics, diagnostics, and vaccines that tackle the threat of untreatable bacterial infections. Welcome, Kevin. Glad to be here. What a great panel. I try not to bring the average down. <laughs> Thank you all so much for joining us. Let's jump right in. Um, we know that this report, this global report, uh, has created a lot of waves and a lot of interest in AMR, both domestically and internationally. I was curious what you each saw as some major takeaways from your perspective and how you see this report and the momentum behind it could be used to really uh, create some real progress on AMR. Kevin, why don't we start with you? One of the dangers of uh, thinking about this problem is that there's so much that's not known. And we had pretty good data for places like Boston or, or you know, Stockholm, uh, but not for a great swaths of the rest of the world. And this study really looked at every available piece of data and came back with what I thought was a shocking conclusion. I, I thought I knew a lot about this space. I was shocked that uh, actually drug-resistant bacteria are killing more people than, than die from HIV, from AIDS around the whole planet, or more than malaria. Um, it's really um, a worse situation than I anticipated. Yeah, it was quite shocking. Mary, your community lives with these types of threats all the time. What did you see as major takeaways from the report? Well, I'd like to see a hope, a glimmer of optimism with the report. Um, you know, really, as Kevin just said, that the conversation continues to grow and the sense of urgency is, is really elevated. Um, as devastating as these numbers are, it's really the global data is really catching up to where people with cystic fibrosis have been and the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation has been for years now. So we'd like to see this as a clarion call to action now. Um, as you noted, people with cystic fibrosis are unique in their relationship with chronic respiratory infections as they are really a hallmark of life with cystic fibrosis. And because of those heightened vulnerabilities, we see the routine use of antibiotics in cystic fibrosis care, it's medically necessary, but with it comes resistance. And too many of our community lives with resistance and facing far fewer options. So. Again, hope to see the, the charge escalated and the move to action become much more urgent. Dr. Boucher, how about from your perspective, what were the key takeaways? Well, I certainly agree with Kevin and Mary. Um, this was shocking to see, although many of us have been worried about this problem for decades now. I think a couple of key takeaways, as Kevin mentioned, is the global nature of this problem. And this report really highlights some of the inequities that we were only just beginning to sort of get our get a vision towards uh, in the developed world. But seeing uh, how disproportionately the vulnerable are affected uh, and those from lower socioeconomic classes and small babies, um, you know, killing the neonatal mortality that was called out here is really shocking. And it highlights something that Kevin said at the beginning, how little we know, you know, the problem of of infant mortality globally is huge and one that the likes of Gates and others are investing heavily in, but we still don't understand enough about it. So, you know, that does bring us to the action call. And, you know, many people named Sally last week, you know, are making the call for action G7 and others, but it really is time to act. So we have to decide 
you know, how are we going to start to solve this truly wicked problem? Kevin, given that it is such a, a global problem, there's clearly, I'm assuming, one country is not going to solve it all. So how do how does that cooperation work? How how should it work, or how do we how should we encourage it to work? I tell you, I, I lead Carvax, um, and we made a decision at the very beginning that we weren't interested in you know the best science from Massachusetts or or Manchester or, or any place. We really needed the best science from anywhere in the world. Uh, this is a global problem. Solutions come from many places. We've funded research now in twelve different countries around the world, and for surveillance, we really need you know, research in every single country of the world. So it requires, you know, cooperation. Uh, governments have to work together. When it comes time to fund the expensive research and development, um, that really the bulk of that's gonna fall on the, the richer countries of the world, uh, the G7, the G20, uh, you know, the ones who actually today are carrying the bulk of innovation for other drugs uh, also need to step up for, for this class of drugs because we have we have problems that can't be solved by, you know, any one country or any one group of researchers alone. Mary, you mentioned that the cystic fibrosis community um, has been living with for years the importance of um, this threat, if you will. Can you elaborate a little bit more about it so that people who may not feel like it affects them um, how it affects the CF community, but then how that parallels what we all could be facing if we have an infection and we don't have a, a treatment for it. Yeah, I'm happy to, <clears throat> excuse me. You know, we all are familiar with antibiotics and uh, every one of us can think of a time when we've used an antibiotic, when we've reached for it for ourselves or our children and, and they're readily at hand and many people don't think much of it. <clears throat> but you can really look at the cystic fibrosis community is a microcosm of the risks of persistent antibiotic use and the potential effects, negative effects of antibiotic resistant organisms. So we've had remarkable progress in cystic fibrosis in the last several decades and it's an exciting time. Yet despite that excitement, infection remains a very serious problem that may lead to decreases in lung function for somebody with cystic fibrosis increased elongated hospitalizations, worsening lung disease, and can even result in trans the need for a lung transplant or death. Um, we have great data on all of the bugs around in cystic fibrosis, and we see increases, and we see increases in resistance to many of them. Let me give you a couple of examples. 25% of people with cystic fibrosis culture for MRSA. Uh, a, bug that many people may have heard of and maybe even known someone who's had. The median age for this infection is just 11 years old. It worsens lung disease and it often leads to increased hospitalizations and decreased survival. Let me tell you the story about one person, just one such person who had that MRSA experience. It was a 19 year old woman living in New Jersey who'd been struggling with MRSA since childhood. There were only two antibiotics that made a difference in fighting this infection for her. And as a child, she routinely took these antibiotics. Again, she had cultured very early, so she was on these, these drugs routinely from a young age. Um, and usually they were enough to rebound her back um, pretty quickly to her baseline lung function. But with that 
increased prolonged uh, continued use came waning effectiveness. And when she turned 16, those antibiotics weren't cutting it anymore. And she was getting sicker and sicker and staying in the hospital longer and longer, missing school, missing out on life, um, and really getting worried. She was getting worried and her parents were getting worried. The good news is she got on one of our very effective, highly um, effective new modulator treatments that treats the root cause of the disease of cystic fibrosis. And while that was an important um, and uh, extraordinary milestone for her in the fight against CF, it doesn't treat infections. And you can see with her experience and her continued experience of decreased lung function, that gaping hole in the excitement that is the story of cystic fibrosis right now in that um, there was really just still for her one infection away from wiping out all the gains and sort of a new story in her life. You know, there I can go on and on about <clears throat> all of the infections that people with cystic fibrosis are prone to, things like pseudomonas, which is a major cause of lung infection in our community with more than 40% of our population culturing it. It's a rare disease. And I think the takeaway point here is really the case of antibiotic resistant infection is very real in the cystic fibrosis community because our community uses antibiotics so frequently. Um, and the challenges that they face today, like that young woman from New Jersey I just told you about, really are um, a scary prediction of what could happen to a larger population that could be at risk tomorrow if we don't significantly escalate our efforts to manage this very real threat today. When Dr. Boucher, you probably see some of these in your practice as an infectious disease specialist, what types of um, uh, resistance are you seeing and are you seeing those trends change since you've been practicing? Yeah, so unfortunately, I do see it in my practice, and I'll say that every physician sees this in their practice in 2022, so that's really important, and, you know, Mary highlighted the really important message of how antibiotic resistance is limiting medical progress, right? Here we are with breakthrough therapies for cystic fibrosis, and the success of those therapies is at risk because of antibiotic resistance, and we see that in other diseases, right? Cancer. The second leading cause of death in cancer is infection and the problem of antibiotic resistance in our cancer patients is huge. Um, I was just on service two weeks ago in the hospital and while we had a lot of COVID, we have a lot of antimicrobial resistance. And I saw patients who came to us for very sophisticated therapies, things like organ transplants. And there was no problem with the transplant, but there was with the infection and the infection was putting their ability to survive to get the transplant in some cases or after a transplant in jeopardy. So this affects many, many, many people in America and now we know around the world as well. And that link between antibiotic resistance and our ability to see medical progress in things like cancer, organ transplant, cystic fibrosis, as Mary pointed out, is very real. And if we don't do something about this, we're gonna see a real potential for medical progress to be stalled. And I think that's a message that, um, you know, it's, it's important for people to understand that. Um, and I hope that that will motivate people to act. And, you know, we talk about action. One of the things I just want to raise is this, this sort of phenomenon about antibiotic resistance where what I do, what kind of antibiotics I take doesn't just affect me getting over my infection. It affects everybody because every time antibiotics are used, 
it increases the risk of resistance in the whole community. And so we have this, this um, uh, tension between thinking about you know, the care of the patient in front of us, which is my job as a physician, that's my number one job, but also thinking about doing what's right for the population, for everybody, like the patient Mary told us about who's gonna need that antibiotic you know, when they get into trouble. So the societal benefit of antibiotics is a very important concept. And I think you know, that gets to one of the ways we can deal with this, which is not overusing antibiotics. And in America, that's the biggest problem, right? Is overprescription in the outpatient setting typically for, for things that aren't bacterial infections. So we have to be good stewards of the resources of the antibiotics we have as well. Now, Kevin, you work with innovators and on that side of things, why can't we just produce new ones that fight these bugs? And, you know, we came out with COVID vaccines in record time. Why don't we have the therapeutics and diagnostics ready now and what can be done there? First of all, there's a story behind COVID that's really decades of research that led up to the moment. And, and then when the federal government pulled the trigger on Operation Warp Speed and said, all the money is concerns are off the table, you know, do everything as quick as you can. Uh, they were delivering on a platform that that uh, many decades of work had gone in before that. But, but your question is a good one. Um, and most other things that are innovative in our lives, um, you know, I'm looking at my computer screen, right? So think of the computer that people might be listening to or watching this on or the phone that they have in their hands. Um, very innovative product. And the, the most novel new ones compete with one another and, and get amazing volumes because customers line up to buy them and get premium prices, um, really excellent pricing. And so the, the most innovative products in our economy usually get high volumes and high prices uh, because consumers demand that. For antibiotics, it's, it's really quite different. Um, not only do we have to start over on innovation from the word go, you know, if we have good aspirin, it's going to work forever. Uh, imagine if aspirin, every time we used it to treat a headache, got slightly less effective and we had to invent another aspirin uh, every generation or so, you know, it becomes harder. And when you get to the marketplace, not only is the science hard, the economics are terrible because the most innovative antibiotics for excellent reasons um, as Helen, Dr. Brashay could, could testify to, uh, they're, they're generally withheld from broad use. We want to be good stewards, we want to be careful with them. And so the companies are in a situation in which the most innovative products are actually put on the shelf for years. And, uh, and that's not a product that one can make money on very easily. So the basic rules are just different from every other innovative product we have in the economy. And it requires a really transformative new approach into how we're going to pay for these. Um, Dr. Brashe talked about the societal value. Uh, we are paying for antibiotics today based on a per pill and per use sort of volume-based model. But these drugs really have amazing societal value, even if we're not using them today, but we're saving them for tomorrow. And uh, thinking about new ways to pay for antibiotics as a, as a country is really where some of the most in interesting and innovative policy work is happening right now. Well, thank you for that. Mary, um, we're, as we head into year two, it seems like a lot longer in many ways of the pandemic, there's a lot of fatigue 
with respect to mask wearing, with respect to stopping the spread, um, social distancing and the like, um, even, you know, slow uptake on boosters uh, for vaccination for COVID. Um, but the cystic fibrosis community has had to live with infection control all their lives. Any uh, words of wisdom that you would have in terms of encouraging people or, or uh, you know, from, from that community's experience about the risks that they face and, and how people can kind of carry on? Thanks for the question. Um, and yes, I think people with cystic fibrosis uh, have been practicing excellent hygiene and social distancing for their entire lives. We have lots to learn from them. I know I certainly have. You know, the good news and the COVID pandemic for cystic fibrosis is that people with cystic fibrosis have fared better than we previously thought at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and most likely this is at least due in some part to the fact that inf infection prevention and control precautions are paramount um, when it comes to CF. They, as I said at the outset, they are experienced at infection prevention and control, mask using, hand washing, uh, but, uh, avoiding uh, people who are sick is, is a hallmark of CF care, routine CF care in the home and in any clinical care setting. That doesn't mean that it makes their experience any easier and that this hasn't been a very scary time for people with cystic fibrosis. Uh, I think what, what I can say um, on behalf of people with CF who I have spoken to and parents with children with CF is it's so critical to be prepared. It's so critical that we have good defenses and that we utilize them. And as Kevin said, that we really think of societal benefits um, when we think about what we are doing in a public health setting um, and in exploring in new innovations. Um, I also hope that it's made people more appreciative of the potential dangers of difficult to treat infections and how we really need to be thinking strategically to try to prevent the next pandemic and to capitalize on what we've learned. Oh, fantastic points. And thank you for sharing that because I do think um, many of us are fatigued, but the cystic fibrosis community has been living it like I said, for, for years and years and, and continues to, to do what they need to do. Um, Dr. Boucher, you mentioned some of the key takeaways from the big study and then also from your medical practice and how all physicians, not just infectious disease physicians, are confronting the problem of resistance. If there was one big thing or a couple big things that you wish people would take away from our conversation today um, and maybe explore more information about um, but um, something that they really understood the threat that AMR poses, what would that be? Well, it's a great question. I think that for everyone, right, it's important to understand that the best infection is the one that never happens, right? So prevention is key. That's everything from washing our hands, staying home when we're sick, not taking antibiotics if you don't need them. And we all have a role in that, right? We all can ask our doctor if they're prescribing an antibiotic, do I need this? What is it for? And really try to be part of the solution there. And then I think get involved and really think about what Kevin mentioned. We have to figure out a way to incentivize making new antibiotics because no matter how good we are at taking care of the ones that we have and we need to be better, and no matter how good we are at prevention, we will still have infections to take care of. I will still have that in my practice, as will every physician. And we'll still have patients with cystic fibrosis who get infections and need our care. 
That means we need tools in the toolbox. I need to have antibiotics to go to for my transplant patients when they're sick with a resistant infection. And as of today, there has not been an antibiotic approved by the FDA since November of 2019. I'll say that again, November of 2019, a long time. The pipeline is not deep enough. The science that Kevin is doing in Carbex is very exciting. There's a lot of exciting things coming along, but we have to figure out a way to incentivize people to make them for us. And um, there's a lot of different ways to do that. And the most promising right now is this thing called a pull incentive. Uh, in, in one such pull incentive is being advanced in the United States called the Pasteur Act. It's a subscription model. And I really encourage people to support that and to really start to get active in being part of the solution to the problem of antibiotic resistance. Kevin, what would you add to that in terms of what people should take away or could take away from our conversation? I'm a strong supporter of the Pester Act. We need to start stop paying for antibiotics based on the volume, uh, but instead based on the value to society. The subscription does exactly that. Um, but I'd also say that, um, you know, at the beginning, I said that really um, drug-resistant bacteria are killing really almost twice as many people as they're dying from HIV today. Um, that should be like top of the fold on newspapers or a leading story on every news program. It's not. Um, because uh, when we saw the threat of HIV, uh, there was a global response. And part of the, the reason why drug-resistant bacteria killing more is that all the HIV people have been very successful in driving those death numbers down. We have great drugs now. We didn't have drugs at the beginning. We, we are beginning to, to work towards vaccines. We've never had vaccines against HIV. Uh, there's been global mobilization and all sorts of billions of dollars spent on the research side, but also the patient side uh, to help prevent and, and reduce transmission uh, prevent infection in the first place, you know, massive global effort that is working, right? And we don't have, you know, a fraction of that you know, yet in this sphere. And uh, and the success of the HIV movement and driving down deaths is really uh, the, the most optimistic thing we can see, right, uh, in this space. And last thing, uh, toy with your patients a little bit, is that, uh, you know, Caesarean sections are a very common surgical procedure. Um, it's the way that, you know, a third to a half of us in our country come into, into life. And um, high school athletes, you know, who tear their ACL need, need surgery. And, uh, you know, so do 40 or 50 year olds who overexert at a soccer game and, and tear something, it goes pop. And in older age, uh, you know, knee and hip replacement, you know, and, and then everything else that happens that's modern medicine Dr. Mache talked about cancer, but everything else that's done, you know, relies on the safety net of antibiotics. And so that cesarean section or that high school ACL repair or that hip replacement for your grandmother or grandfather, all of those things would be more dangerous, um, more life-threatening, less effective if we don't have antibiotics. So, um, you know, it's not just our little narrow thing. It's really all of medicine that we're trying to protect. Um, important message, absolutely, to reinforce. Mary, how about you? Um, key messages or thoughts that you would have people take away so to learn more about AMR and the threat it poses? 
Well, I want to double down on both Dr. Boucher and Kevin's strong support of the Pastor Act. And I wouldn't be a good advocate if I didn't implore everyone to advocate for what we can do differently uh, and what we need, actions we need to take. Um, we are doing our part at the CF community, and I know everyone on this call is as well, in really asking for action, asking for action now. The Pastor Act is gaining momentum. We're adding support in both the US House and the United States Senate every day. I know the CF community is up there routinely telling our story, sharing stories like those we're talking about here today to put a face on the need to add a sense of urgency. And I am again, very optimistic that, uh, that this report can help add an extra boost of incentive to push this bill over the finish line. We can do it this year, but it is going to take many voices saying this is something vitally important uh, amongst a slew of many issues. So I encourage you to take action. I encourage you to call your members of Congress and say this matters. You want to be sure that antibiotics are there for you and your family when you need them. Um, as I said, the CF community is sharing those stories as in many places as we can. And we're also putting our money where our mouth is. The CF community has, um, has required antibiotics for a long time. So in 2018, the CF Foundation committed $100 million to research in antibiotic space is something that will benefit many people beyond people with CF. We reached that, um, that dollar goal uh, just a few weeks ago, 100 million, two years ahead of schedule. We will continue to robustly fund any science well past that mark. The good news is there is lots of good science. So as Kevin said, there's the science is there. We'll continue to fund it, but we have to have something on the other end. So again, contact your members of Congress, see this matters and ask them what they're doing. And the good news is there's something they can do that can support the Pastor Act and pass it this year. Thank you all so much for those impassioned messages and, and clear cut. We all are in this, we all are subject to those threats. And it's important that now that we are aware that we can take action. So I appreciate so much the suggestions of how people can get involved. Thank you all for joining us for this installment of Infectious Conversations. Please feel free to share this podcast within your networks. And to learn more about the rising threat of superbugs and antimicrobial resistance, we invite you to visit us at fightinfectiousdisease.org, where we have links to the Lancet study that we talked about, and also links to the materials, um, CARBAX, Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, Infectious Disease Society of America, and other resources for factual information and opportunities to get involved. Thank you again. <laughs>